0: Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is And That's The Way It Was for January 24th, 2019. We're switching gears in a major way today, <laughs> where uh, it had been my intention to do an episode on Iran this week and an episode on the Muslim Brotherhood this week, and then of course you guys know that uh, our earlier, our first episode of the week got canceled because we had some problems here at the house, and uh, there was just no way for me to record. Uh, So I thought I would do an Iran episode, and that would be our one episode for the week. And then, of course, uh, everything went fakakta in Venezuela on Wednesday, uh, and I feel like we need to talk about that. Uh, Specifically, we need to bring somebody in to help us talk about that, because I am not the person to talk to about Venezuela, uh, and so we are lucky to be joined by Jared Abbott, who is a longtime socialist activist with the DSA uh, and a political scientist who studies participatory democracies, social movements, and political parties in Latin America. He recently returned from Venezuela after four months of field work. Uh, and he is going to be here on the phone in just a moment uh, to help us understand what's going on in Venezuela, and ha- more importantly, how things got to the place that they're at. Uh, so I'm very happy to have uh, uh, gotten Jared, uh, and and uh, hopefully it will be an illuminating discussion. I know I'm certainly in need of some remedial education on Venezuela, so uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy this. And uh, with that, I will get him on the line and we'll start the interview. Okay, I'm joined by Jared Abbott, who is a political scientist. Uh, he has just returned from doing fieldwork in Venezuela uh, and specializes in Latin America Jared, thank you for being on the show to help me and uh, the people listening learn a little bit more about what's happening in Venezuela.
1: But no, it's great to be here. Thanks so much, Derek.
0: So I wanted to start with I, I feel like um, the the main kind of response to what's happening from the left, and I know you're you're very active in DSA. You're you're you know on the left. Uh, the u s shouldn't be involved in this it's it's you know imperialism it's this is all bad. we should just butt out. And uh, that's I want to leave that we can talk about that toward the end of the interview because it's sort of that seems to me to be kind of obvious that the United States should not be involved in, in dictating regime change in Latin America. Uh, and I think the more interesting discussion is, what's the context for all of this, for what happened on Wednesday and then, uh, you know, this steady kind of months-long decline of the Venezuelan economy, years-long, really. Uh, and that's the stuff that I wanted to, to have you on to talk about. Uh, so I think the first place to start is with the dismal Venezuelan economy. And there are uh, – a part of the the cause of that decline certainly has been – uh, U.S. sanctions, uh, which have punished and uh, immiserated the, the Venezuelan people and the Venezuelan economy. Um, but there is a, an internal component, a domestic component, I guess, to uh, to what's happened. And I wanted you to talk about the background here, talk about going all the way back to Hugo Chavez uh, and, you know, he's what he did uh, to kind of change the, the Venezuelan economy, or at least the distribution of the resources generated or the money generated by right, the Venezuelan right. economy, and what he did wrong, which, you know, we can talk about, uh, I think, his failure to kind of get the country off of its very heavy dependency on oil revenue. So go ahead and uh, take us through some of the deep background.
1: Right. No, that's a great way to frame it. Um you know, Hugo Chavez uh, was like all of the other folks who were heading left-leaning governments uh, in the 2000s in Latin America. That is to say, people like Evo Morales in Bolivia and Rafael Correa in Ecuador and uh, you know Lula in in Brazil, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in that, basically, what he did was took advantage of a You know, commodities boom. In the case of Venezuela around uh, oil, you know, a vast, vast, vast majority of Venezuela's export uh, income comes from uh, oil, uh, multiple times more than uh, any other country in Latin America. Uh, And between the years of, say, 2004, 2005, and 2012, 2013, uh, that created an opportunity for you know, the expansion of uh, programs for the poor in all these countries, a redistribution uh, to varying degrees. And, you know, in, in a sort of blunt sense, what, what distinguished uh, Chavez's social policy from those of some of the other countries is that uh, he just did more redistribution than some of those other countries did. But the economic model itself was not necessarily qualitatively different. Uh, of course, there were major differences, especially with, countries that had a much more modest uh, sort of social democratic program, say, like in Brazil. But in the case of Venezuela, you basically had a massive redistributive program, which helped to keep the Venezuelan economy churning uh, by boosting domestic spending during those years of the commodities boom. But you never really came up with a, a real alternative model a genuine, like they talk in Venezuela a lot about endogenous development, which is something along the lines of a kind of, you know, uh, radical version of import substitution industrialization, which was the, the model of economic planning in Latin, most Latin American countries back in, after the Second World War. But there was never really a very successful program to diversify the Venezuelan economy off of its dependence on oil. Um, there was never really, A really strong plan to uh, save money during the commodities boom to keep those social programs uh, funded after the boom ended Uh, you know because there were lots of political pressures to keep spending uh, to maintain political support and also to keep uh, you know helping more people as the Venezuelan government was trying to do and so when the when the bubble popped uh, in 2013 2014 and oil prices took a dive uh, you know, there was not an economic, an alternative economic model in place. The dependency on, on the oil sector was even greater than it had been at the beginning of Hulotov this period in office. Um, and their foreign reserves, which they rely on heavily for, uh, you know, paying for basic goods, which are almost all imported, well, were um, imported, uh, you know, they just didn't have very much money to, 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 to throw around for those imports anymore. And so you get uh, a massive economic contraction. Um, And I think, you know, it's something, it's hard to to completely false have a for for not thinking in in sort of more longer term uh, with a broader vision of of a genuinely alternative economic model because nobody else had any real uh, solutions for getting out of the, the sort of conundrum that these countries were in, which is to say you either play ball with uh, sort of international financial institutions and, you know, sort of global investment climate and, you know, maintain monetary and fiscal, uh, uh, you know, sort of conservative monetary and uh, fiscal policies, um, which makes it harder for you to do expansive social programs or you, uh, the the only alternative would be to somehow, you know, move away from the you know, your dependence on the sort of international, uh, you know, the global market, which a country like Venezuela that's so dependent on oil just simply can't do. And it was kind of unrealistic to think that in such a short period of time, you know the country could just completely uh, change course do a complete 180 and uh, rejigger its economy around, you know, other sorts of uh, productive activities. I mean, it was just not really a possible in the first place. So I think Chavez definitely could have done more, but, but the more that he could have done would have been, you know, to maybe dent the impact of the current recession that, that the country is going into now, you know, to deal with uh, problems of, you know, a, a administrative problems of lack of efficiencies in, in sort of state bureaucracy, and, and they could have, you know, paid more attention to the sort of, you know, national development projects and, Thinking, you know, developing a a broader and uh, you know longer-term sort of development strategy for the country. They certainly could have done that, but but it wouldn't have produced socialism. It wouldn't have produced.
0: Chavez dies in in 2013 and gets to miss the collapse of oil prices, basically. That all falls in Maduro's lap. Uh, We'll talk about the political aspect of this in a minute, but I I I think Maduro certainly suffers from not having Chavez's political skills. Uh, Like, really doesn't have Chavez's political skills. Um, But talk about how he's responded to the collapse in oil prices. And I want to kind of think about this in terms of – I guess there you, maybe there are three factors here. One is the, the collapse of oil prices and the, the fundamental kind of vulnerability of Venezuela's economy in particular to something like that. Uh, the response that, that the Maduro government has had to that problem – and then the sanctions um and like there's these three things that are all kind of affecting the venezuelan economy only one of which is really in maduro under maduro's control Uh, and so i guess one part of my question is how much of the current hyperinflation you know economic collapse can we blame on maduro and the way he responded to the decline in oil prices how much of it is out of his hands Uh, So maybe that's that's the place to start.
1: Yeah. So um, I think that you know there's just so many different factors at play here. You know when thinking about the causes of the current economic crisis. I mean, like I said before, uh, a big part of this is out of was out of his hands, was out of Chavez's hands. You know, that is the decline in oil prices, just making. Uh, you know, shrinking the pie and making it so that they just didn't have as much money to spend uh, on social programs and making it harder to sustain investment in the oil sector, et cetera. Uh, and then also, yes, the sanctions have been uh, now. By sanctions, got to be clear. Like there are some sanctions that are against specific officials in the Venezuelan government, um, but the sanctions that are most impactful, uh, economically speaking, are sanctions that basically make it so that uh, you know, Venezuelan the Venezuelan oil company and subsidiaries can't get access to credit um, in U.S. credit markets, which basically means that, you know, they just can't get the money that they need to, you know, invest in in, in sort of updating technologies, um, infrastructures in the oil sector, uh, which means that they really can't increase production. And so, for instance, Venezuela is, you know, at, I don't know exactly what the figure is now, but it's, less than half its rates of, you know, barrels per day that it was in, say, you know, 2014. Um, and, you know, without massive investment in the oil sector to, you know, address a lot of the deficiencies that are they're causing those production uh, levels to go so low, uh, you know, they're not going to be able to get back on track. And because, you know, there's so few barrels uh, being produced each day, there's, you know, the, the treasury of the Venezuelan state is much reduced. And the Venezuelan government has very limited access to, you know, the foreign uh, reserves it needs to import the foodstuffs uh, that, it's, that its country relies on. So, so, so those are problems that are somewhat out of his hands. There, there's a, you know, there's a pretty good paper uh, that came out by this guy, Francisco Toro, not Francisco Toro, uh, shoot, I, I can't remember the guy's name, apologies. Um, but there's an article that came out of a, a while back uh, talking about the, the economic impact of the sanctions uh, and it's and it's really there. Um, it, you know, th- these are you know very very important. However, uh, the Maduro government has not really had a coherent economic policy whatsoever. Uh, it seems you know to most observers that they've just been he's been doing everything he can uh, based on a logic of trying to maintain a fragile political coalition uh, that would allow him to. Uh, his government to continue and to maintain at least the you know some level of stability, political stability in the country. So so basically that means you know he's really really focused on, for instance, uh, handing out uh, basically these uh, boxes of food to poor folks and you know sometimes uh, uh, sort of middle class people in Venezuela. Each month it's called the Clap. It's a box of basic food stuff. And lots and lots and lots of people in Venezuela are relying on these boxes of food every month to survive because the minimum wage is worth you know, just a few dollars. And so they need this food to survive. And in order to get the food, much of which is imported, or I think maybe all of which is imported from, from say, Turkey right now, uh, you know, the Venezuelan government needs to do everything it can to uh, you know, keep, the, keep these, uh, the access to these goods from, from Turkey and China, where they get most of their imports uh, going. So that basically means they're mining in, 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 the, in, 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 the, in the Bolivar states for, for gold now, and the Turks are, are coming in, and you know, they're selling gold to the Turks in exchange for you know, these goods. It's a very short-sighted program, but it's a way that the government can sort of make some money uh, to maintain this, this very important program, this food program, that helps them maintain political legitimacy, and also helps keep people fed in the country. And but it's but it's but it's basically disconnected from any sort of broader, uh, or apparently it seems to be disconnected from any sort of broader economic planning. And then it's and it's done a lot of other erratic things, like it's created, uh, it's some an alternative currency called the Petro, uh, which is which is supposedly tagged or pegged to the value of of a, of a barrel of oil, but really. It's not, and nobody really believes in the Petro as a as a currency outside of Venezuela, and so it's not really doing much to stabilize prices. Um, the Venezuelan government has tried to deal with inflation problems by, you know, price controls, price controls that it's imposed, uh, you know, in all, all across the you know the the range of consumer uh, goods, and you know it's not been very successful in in, in maintaining those, in enforcing those price controls, and of course that just leads to higher and higher inflation. They've tried to deal with a very complicated monetary system uh, that had all kinds, like, several different uh, um, exchange rates, depending on, you know, you know, your preferred access to uh, which industries and which groups were, were, you know, given access to preferred uh, prices for dollars. And they've tried to rationalize that somewhat. But, you know, we're still seeing massive inflation, um, because the the bolivar, the Venezuelan currency, is still a fix, essentially a fixed currency, um, and you know that just makes uh, that just creates lots of incentives for, for currency speculation, which is you know happening in a in a rampant way, and uh, you know given the fact that there's all kinds of people, uh, you know, importers uh, that are taking advantage of you know these sort of preferential access to to uh, you know foreign currency. Uh, basically, you're seeing all kinds of speculation in, in, in imported goods, so that also increases inflation. And the government's not been able to address those problems uh, in any kind of in any kind of sustainable way. Uh, it does continue to increase the minimum wage regularly to try to do something to make working people's lives a little bit better. But you know, the minimum wage is not in any way keeping up with. With inflation and you know the, the, they've also devalued the, the, the bolivar multiple times but it's still not anywhere close to the uh you know to the black market rate so it's trying to do various things but it hasn't been successful in staving up or even sort of you know temporarily uh you know limiting runaway inflation which is actually worse now than it's ever been um by a long shot and you know they're also trying to deal with uh, austerity. They're trying to deal with uh, you know budgetary shortfalls by by some forms of sort of austerity on the social spending side. Like they've they've talked about uh, increasing the, the the price of oil at the gas pumps. Which right now oil is you know, like if you if you just need to get uh, or take a gas, it's extremely cheap in Venezuela. I don't know what it is right now, but it's you know, some astronomically low figure, like you can fill up your tank for, you know, 10 cents or something like that. So they've talked about raising uh, the price of gas at the tank, but they haven't really done much of that yet, and they're, you know, they're very afraid of the social impact if they were to do that. Um, So they've tried a lot of things. It hasn't really worked. It's not 100% clear if it's because Maduro and his inner circle are just making really bad uh, decisions themselves, or if it's, that they do have some decent ideas, but, you know, the implementation uh, is, is not happening because, you know, the Venezuelan bureaucracy is, is extremely ineffective and is very fragmented, um, and so sort the of one hand often doesn't seem to know what the other hand is doing. Uh, it's not clear, you know, who exactly is to blame, but it does, it does seem to be the case that, you know, economic decision-making in the country is becoming increasingly centralized, Even compared to the pretty already centralized (laughs) economic decision making structure that existed under Chavez. So, you know, some of the blame for these miscalculations, you know, certainly has to go to Maduro um, in an economic sense. And then uh, hopefully we'll talk about later, but the political decisions that Maduro has made have economic effects.
0: So I think we can start to get into that. There's one other thing I wanted to ask you on the economic side to talk about, and that's um, debt. Uh, Part of this problem, as I understand it, is that um, one aspect of Maduro's response to the, the economic struggles has been to go to Mostly China, I think, but uh, Russia to the extent that Russia's economy isn't also in the in the tank, um, you, you know, and and run up a lot of debt to try and keep things going, like you know, social programs and 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 that sort of thing. And the the you know, there's a even even on Wall Street. I mean, there's a lot of people who are holding, uh, you know, Venezuelan bonds and, and a lot of concern um uh, and we'll talk about this when we talk more about the what what the u.S interest is and in all of this uh, um but there's you know a lot of concern that, that they're not going to be able to pay and and this uh it seems like at this point is is kind of feeding back into the the need for cuts and austerity because there's so like the, the debt service is so heavy and and uh, you know it's kind of kind of burying the country it's adding I guess to to all the other problems is is that? something that, that's contributing here
1: yeah no, it's, i mean it certainly is uh you know the Venezuelan government has uh worked you know they've prioritized paying their you know debt obligations to north american banks uh more than any other thing because they don't want to default uh because they're really worried that if they do they could lose uh, like a lot of their assets, like Citgo, you know, which is the you know a subsidiary of the the, Petavesa, the the Venezuelan state oil company, you know, could get seized. Um, so they're doing everything they can to make sure they're paying off, uh, you know, their 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 loan payments uh, each month, and they're prioritizing that over over everything else. Um, the 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 degree to which that's you know the reason why uh, they're not able to as much on social programs. Um, I mean, I, that's not clear. I think it's certainly a contributing factor. Whether or not it's more or less than, say, some of these other issues uh, that we've talked about, um, I don't know. But uh, I think it's, it's certainly the case that, that they're very concerned about uh, m- keeping their, their North American creditors happy. Um, and, you know, that, that, that's putting aside the uh, issue of their sort of Chinese and Russian creditors. Um, who you know? Apparently, it seems like uh, Maduro has has sort of tapped those resources out, right? I mean, he's gone to uh, he's gone to China a couple times in the last year or two, tried to get uh, you know massive loan packages, and has and hasn't really succeeded in doing that. So, so, so it seems like you know the the party to some extent so with respect to China is, is is either slowing down or over. Um, and this is precisely why we were talking about before, uh, you know, the Venezuelan government doesn't have the capacity to reinvest in in their oil sector because they can't get access to North American credit um, and the credit that they might have access to uh, coming from Russia or China. Uh, and that's drying up as well because, you know, those folks are not uh, 100% confident in, in right. the Venezuelan state's capacity to pay it back. Uh, and so we're in this position where, you know, they are hemmed in by, you know, the need to keep paying off, you know, pretty sizable uh, debt burden every month uh, to international creditors, the incapacity to, to get more access to, to debt, uh, even to, or even to restructure the existing debt that they have, uh, you know, that's basically off the table. And so that's why, you know, some folks have argued that, you know, this issue of the need to restructure their debt is something that uh, the Venezuelan government, this is, the, this is the point at which, you know, the international community, so-called, uh, will have leverage, real leverage over the Venezuelan government because, you know, the, they're not able to, they're not able to do anything, the Venezuelans are not able to do anything uh, to get their economy back on track unless they can get rid of some of these sanctions and unless, the, you know, they can actually have access to, they can actually have the capacity to make legal international decisions because right now the international community The other, the opposition-controlled Congress, Uh, there's dueling Congresses right now in Venezuela, but the opposition-controlled Congress, that's the one that has legal, you know, right to to make uh, international contracts, et cetera. And the the Maduro government, you know, if they really want to do something to get their economy back on track, you know, some folks believe that they're going to have to uh, come to the table to make some sort of concessions to the the opposition-controlled Congress, some sort of power-sharing agreement
0: All right. Let's move into the the political realm here. And I know, you know, we kind of have to say something because uh, I know you don't really want to talk about this and I don't really want to talk about this. But uh, like the, the overwhelming discourse in the U.S. about Maduro is that he's a dictator. He's an authoritarian. He's doing, you know, he's uh, suppressing the opposition and doing terrible things to people. Uh, so, before we get into what I think are the more interesting political questions about what's happening, um, maybe you could address that for a couple of minutes just so we can kind of move on from it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't think there's any question that um, the Venezuelan government has, uh, in the last four years or so, uh, taken a lot of decisions that um, you know, have a, have a flavor of authoritarianism to them. I, I think that's that's sort of indisputable. Um, whether or not they had defensible reasons for doing that because of, you know, attacks from the opposition, you know, sort of like the opposition being not really committed to, to democracy, like that's a separate question. But, you know, there is ample evidence that, you know, the Venezuelan government has, uh, you know, sort of crossed the line with respect to uh, you know, things like suppressing uh, protesters, um, you know, uh, intimidating opposition folks um, in certain cases, uh, you know, making it so that, you know, trumping up charges so that opposition people can't run for office, as happened in the 2018 elections, uh, working very hard against, so it's, and it's not just the uh, the right-wing opposition that that's being affected, it's also the sort of, you know, what you might call the critical left-wing opposition, uh, you know, which is not very big in Venezuela, but but it, it is there. And, and so, you know, I talked to people that, that, that made reference to, uh, you know, the attempts by, you know, folks in the ruling party to, uh, to, to keep, uh, you know, people from the critical opposition from running for leadership elections in their unions or from intimidating, you know, people in, you know, in, in union elections to vote a certain way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, there's all kinds of ways in which, you know, the Venezuelan government has. Uh, you know, crossed some, some 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 pretty serious lines with respect to things like political political rights and civil liberties. Um, so I think that I think that's true, and uh, we, we we shouldn't shy away from from, from, from saying that. Um, but of course, it should also be stated that you know they have uh, that that most of the accounts in, in the U.S. press have just been you know totally sensationalized, and you know whenever. Whenever anything happens, like in the you know a clash between opposition and government, uh, protesters or whatever, you know there's just always an assumption that any violence that's done is only done by the by the government forces, and there's never any acknowledgement of the of the degree to which you know certain opposition uh, forces and, and groups within the opposition you know have been very anti-democratic. And the way that they've uh, gone about doing politics, and and have worked very hard to inflame tensions in the country, um, and have also, you know, like nobody really talks about the fact that you know there's sort of like a, been uh, a very long and sort of tradition, for instance, of of uh, you know peasant organizers in the west of the country, you know, basically being being murdered by you know, um, landlords who are, who are tied to the opposition, chavista organizers. Uh, you know, not much is ever talked about of sort of violence being meted out um, from the opposition, uh, you know, to, the, uh, to folks who are supporters of the government, which is something that should be pointed out. But it doesn't negate the reality that, you know, the government uh, has also taken steps that, that go beyond uh, what, what they should have done and, uh, you know, we as uh, international uh, socialists, uh, you know, should be aware of that and, and, and should critique it. Uh, but we should also put everything into context so that, so that we're aware that, you know, our role, uh, you know, essentially is not to uh, take stands one way or the other in, in, internal, in internal politics defense as well, but rather to focus more on, uh, you know, what our own government is doing. Uh, to exacerbate problems in Venezuela. So, And we also need to remember that even if the Venezuelan government is doing things that are, that are problematic and that should be called out, which they definitely are, uh, you know, that the Venezuelan government is not the same thing as, you know, the Chavista movement. The Venezuelan government is not the same thing as, you know, the sort of Bolivarian revolution. And there's, you know, one of the problems of the Venezuelan, of the ruling party, the socialist party, is that, you know, it's not very keen on, you know, very open debates and self-critiques, because those are often seen as, you know, somehow uh, signaling a lack of loyalty or whatever. But there are plenty of people, you know, that are very, very, very committed to the Bolivarian Revolution and have, you know, serious uh, positions of importance that understand that these are problems and and that, you know, uh, changes need to be made. Um, and, and that are really committed to a sort of a bottom-up process of, uh, you know, democracy and, and socialism in the country, but they're basically being placed between a rock and a hard place because they say, look, if I come out and critique Maduro and all the stuff that isn't so great about the, what, what's going on with the government right now, you know, that's just going to be used as fodder, uh, you know, to strengthen the opposition, you know, that has been against the Bolivarian process at every step of the way, and I don't want to do that. And so they close ranks behind uh, the government because the alternative to Maduro is, you know, in their eyes, neoliberalism or return to neoliberalism, which would be which would be worse than anything. So, you know, there's a lot of kind of, uh, I don't know, sort of contorting, like rhetorical contorting, you know, along the lines of what I was just doing, uh, in all these discussions, but the reality is that, you know, the Venezuelan, uh, there's a huge layer of, of genuinely committed Venezuelan socialists that, you know, they're not in a very propitious, you know, economic or social uh, or political climate to actually build a real socialism, you know, in the short term, I don't think, for a lot of reasons, but that are genuinely committed to bottom up grassroots democracy and socialism. But like I said, you know, they don't really see the alternative to continuing to support the government because the alternative would be something even worse. And as bad as some of the stuff the government's doing may be, uh, you know, it's still the kind of inheritor and the legacy of, you know, this movement that, you know, uh, created a completely new Venezuela and which empowered, you know, millions of people, um, you know, throughout the, the, the mid-2000s and up until... 2012-2013. So, you know, folks don't really feel like they have much of a choice, and it's easy for us in the U.S. to say, you know, uh, armchair, uh, you know, sort of quarterbacking and saying, oh, well, the, the Maduro government has done all these really bad things, and so we must condemn the Maduro government, um, and, and then we can also say, but we also, I mean, this is sort of the way some on the far left uh, go, they say, well, we, we have to condemn both the Maduro government and the opposition, because they're both anti-democratic, and in some sense, uh, you know, that's true, uh, but it's it's too easy, and and, it, and that's not the choice that's that people that these grassroots socialists that are that are on the ground are being faced with. And so, when we have these debates, we need to try to keep in mind, you know, the reality uh, that an ordinary activist uh, or you know somebody that's actually trying to build socialism in Venezuela well is faced with, and try to see it from their perspective. Um, and then you sort of get to you sort of get a sense of why you know people have these sort of Tortured, you know, interpretations of the status of the government because it is, in fact, a, a quite complicated question, um, and uh, you know, there's no easy answer for anybody.
0: So that, that's, I think, that's a, a an excellent way to put it. And it's, you know, it's it's not a black and white thing. It's it's there's a lot of nuance, um, but I, I think the the more immediate question um, now is not, you know, what has Maduro done or, you know, what has the opposition done uh, in terms of, you know, their kind of authoritarianism or their their past actions. We're, we're at a point now where uh, the main question is political legitimacy. Um, right. And there are two elements of this that I wanted to ask you to talk about. The first is popular legitimacy. Um, you know, we, we get the stories in the u.s about all the protesters who come out to protest against maduro you know you hear uh, just on wednesday when when juan guaidó made his big declaration that he's the new president uh you know we heard there were tens of thousands of venezuelans turned out to protest against maduro we don't hear routinely we don't hear about the people who come out to demonstrate in favor of Maduro or in support of Maduro. Uh, so I think there's a missing element to to that. And, and the question of popular legitimacy is one that we're not getting the full picture on. The second aspect of this is legal legitimacy. And here, it seems to me, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but there are basically two elections <laughs> that are at, at you know at issue here one is the 2015 election for the National Assembly which the opposition won uh, the opposition rarely anymore it seems contests elections and this was one that they did contest and they won and you know shortly after that this the Venezuelan Supreme Court kind of, Systematically stripped the assembly's authority away, and then Maduro came up with this idea for a constituent assembly that would replace the not not quite replace, I guess, but sort of supplant the National Assembly. Uh, and right. you know, he held elections for that, and the opposition boycotted the elections. So naturally, they're all Maduro people who are who are uh, you know in the constituent assembly, and they've sort of usurped the constitutional, it seems to me, authority of the National Assembly and put it in this this other body. And then there's the question of last year's presidential election, which again the opposition, for the most part, boycotted, uh, was a, a relatively low turn on election, depending on whose figures you uh, believe. Low turnout in modern 10. history. That's, that's indisputable. Um, <laughs> so, um, and so the 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 argument from the opposition uh has been for you know all all months since the you know since this this really started to kick into high gear that maduro is illegitimate because that election was illegitimate uh he you know did things to rig the vote and and there were irregularities etc etc but at the same time like it, it seems to me that the opposition's grounds for contesting that election after the fact are hurt by the fact that they didn't participate in the election uh, yep. you know, they, they didn't stand in the election, so they can't say that it was taken from them. They, they allowed it to be taken from them in a sense. And, you know, to get to the questions of, you know, whether it was a free and fair election, you kind of need to have the opposition participating in the first place. So talk about right, these yeah. two elements and, and, you know, I mean, obviously this is my, uh, amateur <laughs> framework. So, you know,
1: no, I think you've done, I think you've, you framed it pretty well. Um, so on the political legitimacy, the popular legitimacy side, I think this is this is sort of an easier one. Uh, you know, the you will notice when you go to Venezuela that the uh, Chavistas are highly mobilized. I mean, and this isn't new; like they've been doing this ever since the you know 2002 coup, you know, against Chavez, and uh, and you know they're having. You know, big rallies, like on a weekly basis, rallies against imperialism, rallies, you know, um, you know, support of the revolution, etc. They have all kinds of really, 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 really well-developed, um, you know, party organizations, and uh, you know, what are the focus of my uh, academic work, which are called communal councils, or consejos Comunales, which are basically like local level. Um, they're kind of like local level, like very neighborhood level participatory budgeting assemblies, essentially. Um, And there's probably about, you know, uh, we're not sure now, but as of a few years ago, there were maybe 40,000 of these throughout the entire country. And while they're not party organs per se, you know, the this was a a very, this is a pet project of of Chavez, and the Chavistas are very, very committed to developing these uh, neighborhood associations or neighborhood organizations. And in the last few years, they've sort of, so so the the communal councils are very local level, say like, you know, a few blocks. But then in the last few years, they've they've worked on what are called communes or comunas, which are sort of like broader, like maybe an aggregation of 10 or 15 of those communal councils. And, you know, they develop like small scale um, agricultural projects and sort of like, you know, sort of uh, small industrial projects, like, you know, like a, like a factory for making backpacks or shoes or, or whatever. Um, and these organizations in addition to a whole range of other uh, party and party-related organizations, including the, you know, what are sometimes uh, uh, negatively referred uh, to uh, in the international press as, as colectivos, which are sort of like local groups of, 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 of sort of community activists that are, that are very hardcore supporters of, of the Bolivarian process, and, and are sometimes sometimes arms in, in their communities. Um, you have this, this huge constellation of, of popular organizations um, at the center of which I think is, is sort of this system of communal councils and, and communes. And, you know, probably at this point, 20, 25% of the population participates in those, which is down from, from its high But what it basically means is that you have a very, very, very committed and, you know, increasingly ideologically sort of coherent, uh, you know, sort of uh, set of uh, grassroots movements. Um, who are, who provide the infrastructure for Chavismo, and they are, you know, very committed uh, by and large, and they believe that the principal problem facing the country uh, is, is what they call the economic war uh, being waged on them by the United States and by the domestic opposition. And that basically amounts to, you know, people speculating. Uh, you know, um, with, with, with foreign currency and, and speculating, you know, hoarding goods and then and, and selling them at a much increased price, um, what they call pachaqueros. And so basically there's this very large group of people um, which who are, you know, not only very supportive of Chavez, but as, you know, not, we're, we're decades into this process now so, you know, there's, there's, there's a very well-developed ideological framework for Chavismo, and, you know, they have, like, like, schools of formation, or what do you call them, like, sort of ideological schools, like, where people learn about the Bolivarian ideology and all this stuff, and, and especially younger people, this is the only culture which they've ever known. And so what this amounts to is something much more than the, the international press makes it sound like, oh, well, these people are just getting their little boxes of food every week, and that's what's keeping them supporting uh, Maduro. There may be some people that are like that. Or there definitely are some people that are like that, but there's also a lot of people that are just genuinely committed to the the Bolivarian the, the Revolution, um, and they exist in you know somewhere in this big orbit of community mass organizations that I was referring to, and you know they can mobilize the hell out of uh, you know their base uh, when and if they need to. Um, and the idea that somehow these folks are uh, just going to go away. You know, is it because Juan Guaido says, you know, he's the president of Venezuela, like, that's not going to happen. And that's partly, you know, maybe we can talk in a little bit about some of the potential resolutions of this crisis, but that's partly one of the things that suggests that the, the genuine need for some sort of mediated solution, because this Chavista base isn't just, you know, people that are sort of moderately connected to, to the leader or are just, like, hanging on for because they're getting material goods. Like, they're genuinely committed um Revolutionaries and Chavistas, and you know, they provide a very powerful base uh, for the government. So, so that's the popular legitimacy. Now, beyond that 25 percent, the government's not very popular. It's it's very unpopular, actually. You know, Chavez at his height had 65, 70 percent popularity, and now the government is maybe 20, 25 percent. And you know, if, when and when they ask him polls like, you know, do you support Maduro? It's like maybe 20, 25, and when they say you know, do you support a candidate who would carry on the legacy of Chavez? Then it's maybe like 35, 40. Um, So you do have the majority of the population is is very upset with the government. And, you know, they used to say, well, it was only middle class people that were upset. But that's obviously not the case. If if only 25 percent of the population is supportive of the government, this is also something that's that's going into the Barrios. And so, you know, the government has very, very, very strong support among that sort of 20, 25 percent. But it has extremely weak support. Among the rest of the population, and then when it comes to the the legal legitimacy issue, you know, it's uh, it's kind of a matter of you know, well, let's let's turn back to the, the elections in 2015. So, like you said, the uh, opposition won those elections, um, and over time, the government basically just used its influence in the Supreme Court to uh, nullify everything that the that the country. And then they came up with the idea of saying well, we're going to write a new constitution, um, and we're going to create a constituent assembly to do that. And then while the constitution is being written, the constituent assembly will be the the sovereign, you know, legislative body of the country, which which has been the case since uh, wait 2017. Um, and they they haven't started writing the constitution yet, although they've been they've certainly been working on it. Um, so is Maduro legitimate? Um, you know. No more than, uh, or excuse me, no less than uh, than Guaido. I would say, uh, you know, they, they they both have quite tenuous uh, issues. Are they not tenuous? They both have problems of legitimacy, even legally, because you know. But I should say, actually, I mean, from a legal perspective, I mean, it does seem clear that Maduro has more legal legitimacy than than Guaido, who just sort of made up this idea that you know there's an article in the Venezuelan Constitution that that shows that he's, like, the legitimate president of, of Venezuela. That's that's simply not true. Um, but Maduro, you're right, the opposition did boycott the 2018 elections, most of them, and, and the opposition uh, person who did run, this guy, Henry Falcón, he was not trusted by the opposition at all because... They like a lot of opposition people think that the uh, that, that Falcon was actually being paid by Maduro to be the you know the uh, <laughs> like the, the actual like uh, the loyal opposition. Right.
0: right um, okay.
1: But but Falcon had been the, the campaign manager of, of the very successful presidential candidate in twenty thirteen and twenty twelve um, Enrique Capriles. Um, so I don't actually think that that he was being paid up, But that's what a lot of the opposition thought. They didn't vote for him. But that said, it's not just that the opposition boycotted. I mean. Capriles himself was banned from from standing for office for 10 years. And, you know, he was the most popular opposition candidate they had. And there were other people that could have run for office who were banned from doing so. And and we can argue about whether or not the the legal charges brought against them were on the up and up or not. But, you know, it's a lot of people that were banned from running for office. And also, if you look at public opinion polls from, from early 2018... Uh, you know, there were multiple candidates uh, from the opposition who were running in every poll in the country except for, you know, this one called Hinterlasis, which is like a more government-supportive one, you know, which showed, you know, by far and away that the opposition um, had more support than, than the government did at that time. So, yes, legally, uh, you know, Maduro is the president of Venezuela, and he did win those elections. And, you know, the actual machinery of the elections, I don't know why people are always arguing about that. Like, the machinery is not the main thing. The machinery works fine, although I don't think it worked as fine in 2018 as it had before, but it's not the machinery. It's all the other things that go into, like, you know, making an election, you know, sort of up and up, like, can everybody actually compete? Like, are government resources going to support, you know, some candidates and others, et cetera, et cetera? All those things suggest that, you know, this election was not as fair as previous Chavista elections, of which there have been many, were. So that in no way suggests that, you know, there's there's this cause to uh, just try to destabilize the Venezuelan government and overthrow uh, Maduro. That is unequivocally wrong, Um, but it does mean that, you know, the situation is frankly pretty complicated, and on the opposition side, you know, it's it's, it's true that this uh, Guaido is not the legitimate president of Venezuela Um, and you know this is the problem the opposition has always had like they always they just get into these like legalese issues and they think like one of the best things that ever happened to Chavismo was its opposition because they're just like really bad tactically and strategically and they've always been really bad and they're not getting any better Um, like they're very 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 divided like they like even now there is important parties in the opposition that aren't supporting Guaido because they think he's, like, being too soft and he's not, and he's not going hard enough against the regime. <laughs> um, and so, you know, they use this legalese. They say, oh, wow, you know, like, I found this clause in the, in the Venezuelan constitution which says, you know, you know, I can be the legitimate president of Venezuela, but what they don't think about is just power. And the reality on the ground is right. that, you know, they have to engage with Maduro in some way. You, like, the, the only conclusion you can come to if uh, you're sort of reading what the opposition is putting out there, is that they just want to have some sort of extra legal regime change, uh, some sort of coup against Maduro? Because if they don't want that, then then I don't understand why they're why they're doing all the very very provocative things that they're doing. You know, it's just going to be counterproductive even from their own perspective. Maduro has you know not a ton, not huge 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 support across the population, but like I said, he has very strong support among a very a sizable and very vocal uh, and powerful minority and the opposition is very, very, very divided and it's not likely that they'll get together anytime soon and so in order to avoid some catastrophic outcome you know, like a civil war or like, you know, some sort of genuine political strife that, that goes on for, you know, a prolonged period of time, you know, there just has to be some sort of uh, negotiation dialogue and that requires You know the party is sort of setting aside all this stuff about you know, you know who's legally right, who's legally wrong, because it's just the case that there's a lot of ambiguities and a lot of nuance, and nothing is very clear cut in any of this. Um, And you can keep you know doing legalese all the day, all the you know for as long as you want. But the real issue comes down to you know like who, like the power and who has it and how much of it they have. And until the parties start thinking in those terms um, and what the what's a political solution that's commensurate or sort of, uh, you know, a- applicable to, 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 to those, uh, you know, political power dynamics, you know, w- we're going to have either continued just sort of dragging along, or we're going to see some sort of, you know, even more severe crisis that, that, that may or may not erupt into some sort of violence or, or you know, even less political civility.
0: Um, so yeah, I think you know to to kind of segue into the role that the U.S. plays here. I mean, the the concept of the free but not fair election is one that increasingly, you know, you see governments doing around the world, and yet, you know, we don't go around <laughs> declaring that governments that engage in that kind of practice. Are illegitimate, right? I mean, you know, there's plenty of evidence from places like Hungary and uh, you know other places in Central Eastern Europe and and uh, Turkey and Russia, all you know, all over the place of, of governments conducting elections that are on the in the technical sense legitimate elections. There are people running and people can go and vote. But in all the other aspects, like control of media and state resources and things like that, they're they're rigged. I mean, you know, they're 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 rigged in favor of the government. And yet, the United States doesn't go around saying like, you know, Vladimir Putin is illegitimate or Viktor Orban is illegitimate. We we you know, uh, we accept those as legitimate governments regardless. Um, and I think that's that's kind of the same thing here except in this case we've decided that we have the right to declare that this is an illegitimate government and uh, not only that but to decide what is the legitimate government which is uh, you know just bonkers to me um so that's that's where we are I mean we we get to Wednesday and i I think it's it would be wrong to say that this is all being kind of the strings are all being pulled by the United States I think it it you know kind of, um, denies a lot of Venezuelan people any agency in what's going on in their country, and that's that's not uh, that's not a you know that's not correct. Uh, but I, I I do think I mean there's sort of a confluence of events this week from the the Mike Pence Wall Street Journal editorial to the rally to Juan Guaido. Uh, declaring himself, you know, and, and you could even go back to last week when I guess the National Assembly voted to say that the presidency is vacant, you know, under whatever principle they claim to have. Uh, and, you know, Guaido declares himself president. And immediately you have, you know, countries all over the Americas coming out with statements saying, you know, we recognize Guaido as the legitimate president. It's There seems to have been some level of coordination here. I mean, maybe maybe not, uh, but, but it, it just suggests that, that people were ready for this to happen. Like, they knew it was coming. He didn't, Guaido didn't surprise anybody when he did this. Um, and and that, I think, to the extent that there may have been a coordination of this, I think that's where you can really talk about the United States probably, you know, playing, playing a, a major role. So briefly, because I, I do want to ask you where you think this is going and and what what yeah. may be the outcome. Uh, but briefly, you know, we don't have to get into the whole <laughs> decades and decades of the United States treating right. Latin America like it's its backyard. Um, but you know, talk about. What is the U.S. interest here? I mean, there's clearly a fear of having a leftist government running the country with the largest proven oil reserves in the world. We can go back. You already mentioned the 2002 coup against Chavez, um, you know, the sanctions that, that the United States has has been, you know, kind of. Piling on and piling on, uh, but there are other interests. I mean, there's Maduro's relationship with, I think, you know, especially Russia that has the the the, the Trump administration concerned. Uh, there's the political. Influence of Venezuelan communities in Florida that I think you know needs to be part of the conversation. And then there's the this, the debt. There's the the issue of all the the banks on Wall Street holding Venezuelan debt and kind of white knuckling it and hoping that or you know uh, worrying that that Maduro is not going to be able to pay. So you, you know talk. I mean talk a little bit about why this is why the U.S. is so keenly interested in who's running Venezuela.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's some. It has something to do with the uh, the fact that this is like the only or one of the only sort of you know radical quote unquote radical socialist governments that still exist in, in Latin America, and it's and it's become and it's sort of like the uh, you know you hear like in the in the U.S. press like Venezuela is the new Soviet Union, right? It's the new it's the new case you point to to show how bad socialism is, and it's and it's sort of become this. The international boogeyman of of the horrors of socialism, and I think that that's playing into you know Trump's uh, focus on on Venezuela to some extent. I think you're right that uh, you know the the lead role being played by uh, you know Venezuelan and Cuban American folks uh, in Miami and, and in the Congress. Uh, you know that that that's also playing a really important role in pushing and pushing things through, uh, pushing things forward against Venezuela. Um, and I think that, you know, in terms of the material interest, I mean, that's harder to see because, okay, maybe the geopolitical interest of, beyond the geopolitical interest of, like, wanting to make a world safe for capitalism, uh, you know, which is kind of laughable if you say, you know, like <laughs> a country of 30 million people. Uh, you know, it's not exactly uh, the Soviet Union. But, you know, maybe they're concerned about the relationship between China and Venezuela. But, you know, China's involved in heavily in, in countries across Latin America, it's not, it's not just Venezuela. Uh, and so you think, well, what are the material interests? Well, maybe it's the bonds um, and, and, and all the creditors uh, in the U.S., but if they really cared about seeing a return on their investment, like, I think they'd want more stability rather than less. <laughs> so why are they why are they supporting all this stuff that's, that's making the country, you know, even less able to, 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 to get its you know, economic workhorse off the ground again, which is the oil economy, unless they genuinely think that, you know, somehow there's going to be a coup against Maduro, and then, you know, there's a great new government that's going to come in, and uh, it's going to bring back IMF and the World Bank, and, and everybody's going to feel good, and, you know, we're going to get back to neoliberalism. I mean, maybe that's what these, these risk management people are telling, you know, investors in the U.S., like, but I just, that's just so far-fetched. It's, it's hard for me to believe that. <laughs> um, and so I don't really see what the material interest is, unless they're just completely misreading the situation, uh, which, if you listen to debates among opposition folks, you know, it's, it's certainly possible, because there's a bubble that exists. Uh, you know, like, when you talk to opposition people in the U.S., you know, which is basically every Venezuelan in the U.S., uh, that's not true, but most of them, uh, you know, when when they talk about Venezuela, they've been talking about Venezuela for the last 10 years as if it were, like, worse than Libya. And then you go there, and it's like, oh, well, yeah, there's issues, but, like, well, this is a different world from the one they were describing. So maybe it's something like that. It's just like this echo chamber, and, and, uh, and, and you know, the analysis that, that investors are getting is one that's really, you know, divorced from reality. But I don't know. Um, I think that's a really interesting question. So why what the material interest is, it doesn't seem like there is a really strong one. Uh, you know, there's, there's this really strong political movement on the part of the Cubans and Venezuelans and in the U.S. Congress, like we said, and there's this this sort of general sense of, uh, you know, we need to sort of finally spell the death knell of the one uh, place in Latin America that that, that dared to challenge sort of neoliberal orthodoxy and, and sort of U.S., uh, you know, geopolitical, um, thinking, um, so I, I mean that's not a super satisfactory answer. But like I said, it's it's pretty confusing. To, uh, uh, if you're thinking about, about this from a sort of rational perspective, it's pretty confusing why uh, Trump is still so focused on, on Venezuela. Because even even uh, you know Obama just didn't do much. Like you know they didn't they didn't have much of a Venezuela policy. Right. Uh, you know Bush sort of did, um, but you know they they certainly were supportive of the coup in two thousand two anything like this kind of pressure on Venezuela uh, before partly because the situation is is sort of more intense and more dire than it was before but also certainly having something to do with the fact that now we have Trump in office and that we have this series of right-wing Latin American presidents who are feeling emboldened to make waves against Venezuela that they couldn't before because they didn't have a majority say in the OAS
0: um, yeah I mean it's it's sort of if it's a if it's a case study of anything it's a case study of the horrors of Having a, an oil rentier economy that's ninety five percent based well, on uh, one thing, and you know the the kind of economy that. No matter what system you try to use, is vulnerable to corruption. It's vulnerable to price flux. You know, you know, fluxes in price. It's it's inherently an unstable thing. It doesn't matter if you're uh, trying to, to to fund a socialist enterprise or you're uh, purely capitalist or whatever. I mean, it's just a a, a very shaky economic model. Is right. is the regional? I mean. I want to I want to ask uh, I guess about the regional aspect of this because there has been uh, because of the economic crisis there's been an increase in the number of people leaving Venezuela the number of refugees that have gone to Brazil Colombia Peru and that's upped the pressure you know somewhat in the region oh. to to do something but at the same time like uh, I can't believe that the trump administration cares that there's a refugee crisis in latin america unless uh, some of those refugees wind up making the m- huge massive journey all the way north to the united states i just don't see this this government caring about that but do you think that's that's part of what what's happening i mean is that feeding into the uh, the interest here or no
1: i mean that's certainly fitting into it from the perspective of the latin american leaders i mean you know i think a good example is uh, the president of ecuador uh lenin moreno who is you know uh this was the successor of correa but then sort of went in a in a very different direction than, than correa had wanted uh but basically this is a guy who i don't think generally would want to pick a fight with venezuela but has in recent weeks been you know taking a really hard line against Venezuelan immigrants you know because you know he needs to show strength you know, in the face of the the you know supposedly Venezuelan hordes that are coming over the border, so so some of the people are just being pushed by you know political necessity uh, into being more hardline against Venezuela, whereas other folks like Duque and in in Colombia, and then obviously Bolsonaro and, and in Brazil and Macri and, and Argentina, like they are just ideologically predisposed, and, and you know these folks have a, a mission to to get rid of uh, Maduro and and, and U.S., like, it's not... (laughs)
0: Last, last question is you know what are the possible outcomes here and i you know if you want to talk about the possibility of uh, a military intervention i mean i think that's still a little far fetched i've seen people make comparisons to iraq you know i think that's underestimates the degree to which the united states was already on a war footing with Iraq in 2003, right. whereas it's like not at all. Right. Whereas it's not at all in the case of Venezuela. I've seen people make uh, make comparisons with Libya, uh, which I think underestimates the degree to which the early part of that intervention was carried by the Europeans, who are right there. And, you know, to say that Colombia or Brazil could play that role here seems far-fetched to me um so if you want to talk about the possibility of military intervention uh, please please do but i'm more thinking in terms of you know what is the way out of this impasse where you have two people claiming to be president and you know there doesn't seem to be a lot of it place to compromise there um and you know can there be a, a settlement to this short of some kind of conflict in Venezuela's civil war, I guess.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, obviously this is a big question, and I, I would uh, encourage people that they haven't already to check out an interview that I did with uh, actually Maduro's former chief of staff, this guy named Temir Porras, who in, which is in Jacobin, and he sort of lays out uh, nicely some of the potential um, path forward, which I think is, is quite useful so I'm going to crib a little bit from that.
0: Uh, I'll post but, the link, by the way. I'll post the link to that in the, oh, the description. Oh, wonderful. Thank
1: so you. Um, but it. basically, I think the, the, the options are, you know, the worst options is obviously foreign intervention. Like you said, it's not likely. I mean, the, the Brazilians and the, and the Colombians would have to be extremely irrational or just like, you know, very, 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 very ideologically committed and damn all the all the personal consequences to start a war with Venezuela, which would have obvious, you know, massive uh, effects uh, on the security and the and the stability of their own countries, uh, unless they were just, you know, cravenly itching for, you know, the, uh, short-term, you know, electoral points, uh, which which they may do. But this seems like a pretty major step that could affect them uh, pretty dramatically. And the U.S., like, <laughs> it's... Very unlikely that you're going to see a major deployment uh, of, from the U.S. I mean, you never saw major deployments of, of U.S. troops in Latin America, except with a couple of very important exceptions in the last, you know, few decades. It's normally going to be, it's normally smaller, like it said it's sending advisors or sending, you know, you know, smaller uh, deployments. It's not going to be a full-on invasion. But but even that, you know, it seems unlikely to me. But nevertheless, I've heard some things that were so outlandish. Uh, from the U.S. government that, that, you know, you do have to take that seriously, and it's certainly extremely irresponsible of, of the government to, to, to even raise that. Um, but so that's one, that's one option. Another option, which is also uh, very bad, would be, like you, like you were mentioning, well a lot of civil war uh, or, or some kind of low-intensity, you know, medium-intensity civil conflict, you know, because after all, you know, you do have a couple million people in the country uh, that are armed, and that are very supportive of, of of Chavismo and basically feel like they're being under attack. That they are under attack from the opposition and also from you know countries around in, in the region. And they they worry that you know there's going to be reprisals against them uh, if there's a new government that comes into power. And they're getting you know on the news every day from from the leaders of Chavismo, from Maduro, from Cabello, from you know other sort of bigwigs in the in the party. Like we we will stop at nothing. We will fight till the end. Blah. That kind of that kind of rhetoric and and so you know you have a very large group of people that are very committed uh to defending this process and they have arms and so you know it's unlikely that that they're just gonna that they're just gonna go away uh if, if the opposition were to take power in some way so that means that there's a real that there's a real possibility of some sort of you know real armed conflict in the country um even putting aside the military we don't really know um, what, the, what the dynamics are in the military at the moment. Um, it's the, the, the government has done a pretty good job of, of stamping out you know, small-scale rebellions among the lower and middle officer corps. Um, over the last year, you know, they, they run a very, very tight ship, uh, surveillance, uh, you know, making sure that uh, everybody is staying in line. And those that don't, they, uh, they find them very quickly and they stop them. So it's not clear that, that you would get some sort of uprising uh, necessary from the military, although it's certainly possible. Um, and the upper ranks of the military, you know, they're very much uh, wedded to the regime, at least at this point, because, you know, they're getting all kinds of benefits, uh, you know, control of, you know, various industries, control of, uh, you know, lucrative uh, financial sort sources of revenue uh, through the Venezuelan state. Uh, and so, you know, they, they have an interest in maintaining... Uh, the government of power, which is, you know, obviously a smart move, uh, you know, to, to to get these guys uh, to be on your team. So it's not clear that there's going to be some sort of high-level coup. Uh, that seems unlikely at the moment, although certainly possible. These things always seem unlikely until they happen. Um, but then, you know, the other options would be, you know, the, let's say the best-case scenario, I think, would be uh, some kind of you know, uh, mediated uh, solution. And people always say mediated solution. What does that mean? How does that work? Like, that's extremely complicated and difficult, and it it sort of just sounds like a catchphrase, and to some extent it is. But nonetheless, that's sort of the only possibility, some sort of roundtable where all the key players come together uh, and sort of negotiate some sort of solution, which either means, you know, Maduro uh, initially hands power to uh, somebody else, like one of his sort of lieutenants, like Cabello, uh, who is the head of the national uh, constituent assembly, um, but then Maduro is re- removed, but the government still is in, in place, or you would have, uh, you know, the better option would be, you know, something like uh, there's, a, there's a transition towards some sort of, uh, you know, more uh, widely elections in which more people participate, and, you know, and they, they have some sort of agreement with the opposition to have you know, elections in which everybody feels comfortable about the terms and in which the opposition participates, and then, you know, somehow that, uh, you know, the progressive candidates, uh, you know, who are somehow the legatees of, of, uh, you know, the process of change, uh, but who, uh, you know, want to take the country in a slightly different direction than it's in at the moment, uh, you know, come to power and defeat the opposition. Um, That would be the ideal. But, you know, almost always in these cases, if you do get to a point where you have, some sort of package transition you know that calls for new elections uh you know the the party that was in power formally normally does very poorly in in the subsequent elections and so i think you know we have to be honest that if that were to happen that, that we'd have a transition to new elections that you know so will probably lose um and that creates all kinds of, of of other problems for the country going forward um so i think that's sort of like the best case scenario something along those lines um, but, you know, even in the best-case scenario, the, the future of the country is very, very uh, uns- uncertain. And, you know, it's not clear that there's anybody within Chavismo who, who has the ideas or the capacity to really right the ship. And it's, it's certainly not clear that there's anybody in the opposition that, that, that's able to do that either. So we're looking at a pretty long-term uh, process of, of change, uh, you know, and trying to get the country back on a – on a you know sustainable path and it, you know even in the best uh, circumstances it seems it seems very very fraught but i think to close that the, the most likely scenario i think is that maduro will remain in power uh, and i think that basically Guaido, you know he he kind of you know thinking about it from his perspective i think he came out too early i think if he really wanted to take advantage of the situation he would have you know started to have rallies and everything and he would have tried to build some support and gotten a real basis of support, and then worked up towards some sort of challenging other regime. But I think he did it too early, and I think he did it, as you mentioned before, basically under pressure from the United States government. And I think the fact that the U.S. government is so closely associated with what's going on uh, in the country right now, either through direct coordination or otherwise, you know, that is, you know, from the perspective of the opposition, a major liability, because they're— you know, ensuring that the way that, you know, 30, 40 percent of the population is going to perceive what's happening is that this is a, you know, a Yankee plot, which it may be. But regardless to some extent, but, but regardless of whether or not it is, you know, that's the way a lot of people are going to perceive it. And that's going to mean that the government's going to have the legitimacy among its base to sort of dig in its heels and say, look, these guys are, you know, coming after us, which they are, um, and we need to stop them. And, you know, I think, you know, Guaido will probably end up in jail or exiled like most of the other, uh, you know, most well-known leaders of the opposition. Um, and, you know, that Maduro will maintain, uh, you know, the status quo for, for, for a significant period of time based on what we were talking about earlier in the conversation, uh, you know, of this sort of like mass, uh, this huge network of mass organizations, uh, you know, that Chavismo has built up over, over the years. And it'll be a low growth, or or, you know, at this point, negative growth economy. Sure, but you know, they'll be able to sort of hang on, and you know, make make sure that people are getting enough food to survive, and uh, you know, that things aren't so bad. uh, You know, that there's some some sort of major eruption of of uh, you know opposition that happens regularly. I think they can kind of hold on, you know, at that at that level for a while, um, especially since you know millions of people are leaving the country. And most of the people that are leaving the country are people that don't like the government. So it's, they're actually shrinking the opposition uh, just by, you know, all the all emigration the that's happening. So I think that that can happen now. Uh, that, that, that leaves no options for the development of, of a genuine socialist or, you know, radical democratic alternative in the country either. Because, you know, the government's just going to have to hang on. You know, it's going to have to continue to use a pretty heavy hand to make sure the opposition stays in line and make sure its own supporters stay in line, and it's going to have, you know, very, very limited, you know, room for fiscal maneuvering. It's going to have, you know, very limited room for uh, doing any sort of, you know, more sustainable development uh, plan, uh, because it just needs to do whatever it can to keep its very fragile coalition together. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a, a very imperfect uh, and, 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 un- and, in a certain sense, unsustainable uh, sort of equilibrium, but I but I do think that that's, that Maduro has shown over and over again that he's that he's pretty good at you know keeping his very fragile coalition knit together, um, and he has just enough repressive capacity and just enough you know genuine legitimacy among his base to sort of hold it all together. So I'm not you know coming out of favor uh, of uh, of one. Well, I, I did sort of say what I thought would would be the would be the best solution, even though it has its major limitations. But I do think that. What I've just laid out is, you know, if I had to bet, that's what I would say. Okay.
0: Okay. Well, uh, Jared Abbott, thank you very much for uh, being here and for uh, going through this stuff with us. I think that's going to be very helpful for people and I really appreciate it.
1: No, great. I really appreciate the opportunity, Derek.
0: Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, uh, so again, I want to say thank you very much to Jared Abbott for coming on the show. Uh, He really bailed me out because I was desperate to find somebody who could talk to us about Venezuela, and he really did a great job. Uh, So thanks again to him, and I will post the link to his uh, Jacobin piece, the one he mentioned toward the end of the interview, uh, in the show description, so you uh, you, you shouldn't have any trouble finding that. Um, next week, assuming nothing else goes crazy in the world, we'll be back on our normal schedule. Uh, Until then, uh, as always, thanks for listening, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.